0: This morning from the first letter of John, chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. This is the message we have heard from Him, and proclaim to you that God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with Him while we are walking in darkness, we lie and do not do what is true. But if we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light... We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar. And his word is not in us. This is the word of God for the people of God. God. So, if I ask all of you all, if someone in this congregation disagrees with you on a point of theology, are you willing to label them a sinner? Most of you, I'm guessing. Would say well then nah, maybe not a sinner but what if i said i was going to divide you up into small groups and i wanted you to discuss your differences more thoroughly i'm guessing things might become a little more contentious but then if i went further and said i'll tell you what whoever argues their point most forcefully and 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 just brings it through the clearest i'm going to make that person the leader and the teacher for your small group from now on. And what if that person had said some things that contradicted what you thought was at the core of Christian faith? I think that might raise your ire a little bit more. We might have a rebellion. Certainly we would have a discussion. I think we would have a debate. We might have a free for all. I'm not sure where we would go, but I can tell you that as you read through 1 John, what you find is that they are in that kind of situation. They have people who ferociously are disagreeing with each other to the point of calling each other liars, saying you are walking in the darkness if you disagree with me. I mean, they are head to head this is happening around about the year 100 our best biblical scholars tell us when this letter is being written and they say notice it's really not a letter even though we call it that there's really not an address to anyone there's no personal salutations in it it's more like an essay or someone who's in a debate and they're arguing their side of the controversy i imagine it would be a pretty tense situation for any of us if we were in that kind of discussion where people had such different beliefs than we had about who Christ was and what God was doing in Christ that we were ready to call each other liars but you can see as you read through 1st John that they are having a discussion about who should be included In the community of belief and who should be excluded and further they're talking about whether or not everyone is a sinner or if there's some in their number who have somehow managed to live without sin they do not agree on all points of theology in any way listen again to just a couple of verses notice in verse 6 the author says if we say that we have fellowship with him while we're walking in darkness we lie and do not do what is true or in verse 10 if we say that we have not sinned we make him that is christ we make him a liar and his word is not in us that is strong language to use about someone who's sitting down the row from you someone who's been a part of your fellowship Someone you have probably participated with in terms of receiving Holy Communion. And yet that's where this group finds themselves. Because Christian theology has not been in any way set yet. The ecumenical councils that we can read about in history where leaders from all over the Roman Empire came together to decide what do Christians really believe and how do we articulate that. None of those have happened yet at this point. So there's lots of different pockets of belief. This community of 1 John is certainly one of them. And I bring all of this up because this author talks about sin quite a lot. And when I gave you the theological survey, several of you had questions about sin, and you wanted me to talk about that a little more. One of the questions was what we've used for our title today, is there an unforgivable sin? That came in a couple of different forms. Some people were asking, is there something that I might do? Is there a, a sin I could commit where I was so far away from God that I could not or be forgiven or God would not forgive me? But it also came in the, came in the guise of the question about people that we see as wholly evil who are perpetrating such violence on such a level and indiscriminately that surely... That's an unforgivable sin. There were questions about that. We're not going to be able to look at all the nuances of this. There's whole books written about this, semester-long courses at seminary. But I think 1 John gives us a framework to ask some questions about sin, to consider some of your questions. And I think this framework will be helpful to you. Let's look at this text a little closer. This passage has five clauses that start with if. It's another clue that there's an argument going on. If you think this, then this is going to happen. If you say this, then this is the case. Well, let's look at verse 8 for an example of that. The author writes, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. That's a pretty good summary of the Christian position that says we are all sinners, You may be more familiar with Paul's phrase when he was writing about this to the Romans. He wrote, we have all sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. That's the Christian definition of the human condition. is that God and humans are not the same. That God is without sin, but we are sinners. We get off track. We miss the mark. We sometimes do things on purpose which hurt others or hurt ourselves. Humans are sinners. That's the condition we find ourselves in where we're separated from God. 1 John sums that up very well. But it's even a little more personalized, I think, than what Paul wrote to the Romans. He writes it like this. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. I think he's calling for a little more personal reflection and examination than just saying all of us have sinned he's suggesting I think that all of us look at our own lives and determine if we have sinned now apparently there's some in this community that are arguing that they have no sin that's one remedy to deal with it just ignore it or don't recognize it the author I think has a better remedy in verse 9 He writes, if we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The key to dealing with sin is confession. According to this author, the best thing we can do is to look at our own lives, realize where we are in our relationship with God and how we are doing with all of that, and when we have need then to confess our sins to God. The author is counting on God's love and grace to forgive us and to heal us of all of our sin. The author is saying, we know this is true. We have seen this love and grace being revealed through Jesus Christ. We are sure that God is faithful and just and will forgive us all our sin if we will confess it. Hear it again in verse 7, perhaps you hear it better. But if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. The author of 1 John's making a couple of points. He's saying, so God's forgiveness is an ongoing process and one that covers all sin. So if you are one who's struggling with that personal question, can I or have I committed a sin that God cannot or would not forgive, I would say no. You cannot outdo God on this one. Hear it again, if we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But that leaves the other question, and this often happens in theology where theologians theologian w- wants to push it to the extreme and so there's a question of what about a person who's wholly evil i mean one who's perpetrated genocide you could think of someone like hitler or a terrorist leader today who captures people and beheads them on tv or rapes young prisoners of war we think surely god punishes those people and you can find support for that in the bible but i want us to be careful when we begin to limit god and say what God can or cannot do God may be doing something bigger than we can see and if God is at God's core if the very nature of God is love and the proclamation of the gospel is grace then I think at least we have to allow for the possibility that God might be doing something that we do not comprehend And in fact, God has a way in all of God's wisdom and brilliance to redeem or restore even those we would cast out. Dr. Leslie D. Weatherhead was a brilliant preacher from the last century. wrote a number of books, his best known, The Will of God. You may have read it. But in another one, he talks about these difficult intellectual problems, these theological questions where Christians disagree, or sometimes we have trouble just in our own minds comprehending what to do. He says something that's helped him is is sort of a mental exercise. He says he has a mental drawer labeled awaiting further light. Awaiting further light. He says sometimes we just cannot know all that God might be doing. And then might be in this life. It might be after death. And we simply cannot and will not know until after our death. And he says when he runs into those situations, he's found it very helpful to have this mental drawer labeled awaiting further light. And he puts those problems in that drawer waiting for God to give him more information and insight. He says because otherwise he's run into people in his pastorate that let a single question derail them from living as a follower of Christ. And he said no single question should do that for us, that if there's something that's an obstacle or a stumbling block, okay, keep working on it or set it aside for a while and then go and get it again. But the main purpose is to experience the love of God and to share it with others and experience the abundance that God has in mind. So he says sometimes we have to set these unanswerable questions aside or these questions that have no simple answer. I think that's a good idea yet there remains this other question about whether there is one sin that is unforgivable when you read through the synoptic Gospels Matthew Mark and Luke they all tell this story where Jesus is in an argument a pretty ferocious argument with the Pharisees they're arguing about how to live your life before God and then there comes the passage we read earlier from Luke but it's in Matthew and Mark as well but if you look back just a few paragraphs before where Sarah read for us what you find is Jesus yelling at the Pharisees I mean your Bible is full of exclamation points and Jesus is saying stuff like you fool woe to you Pharisees he is angry and he is arguing with all that he has about the way that he thinks we should live our lives before God The Pharisees have a different way. They're arguing about it. But they're all part of the same family, I believe, in Jesus' mind. And then Luke moves on from that ferocious argument and says that Jesus and the disciples are walking through a crowd of thousands and that Jesus pulls the disciples close and then tells them the passage that Sarah read. And I think what he's saying is that we've got to be careful to differentiate between the Pharisees who I'm arguing with and others who deny that there is a God at all. And that's when we get to the passage that's so troubling to people about an unforgivable sin. It's in chapter 12, if you have your Bible there, chapter 12 of Luke, verse 10. Let me read it to you again. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. In that context, it would be the Pharisees with whom he's arguing. But then he goes on to say, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. What is unforgivable here is not a wrong action against God or the will of God, but a position of denial which claims there is no God, which says that that's not a possibility, that that's not a part of reality. To blaspheme or be blasphemous against the Holy Spirit is to deny that there is a Holy Spirit or that there is a God present with us. And I think what Jesus is saying, if you're dealing with one who says there's no such thing as God, then there's no relationship between that one and God. And if there's no relationship, there can be no forgiveness. If one party doesn't even recognize the other party, there cannot be a relationship. And if there is no relationship, there can be no forgiveness. So one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit is in a position of unforgiveness. But of course, realize in their mind, they don't need forgiveness anyway, because there is no God. This is not a threat that God will not forgive, but a description of reality that without a relationship with God, one in that position will never experience forgiveness. And I think that brings us right back to the argument that we read about in 1 John. Listen to verses 8 through 10 again and see what you think. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, he who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness if we say that we have not sinned we make him a liar and his word is not in us so i don't think when we read one of those passages where jesus says something like that sin is not forgivable that we do very well when we pull that out of context and make that as a doctrinal statement or a general statement of all time i think we have to look very carefully at the context of the passage, and what's going on with Jesus, the disciples, and those others with whom he interacts, to see what he's saying, and to make sure that we represent at least what's in the biblical record as as accurate. So often I talk with people that have read a verse here or there, and they've taken that out of the context, and they miss the larger picture of what the biblical writers are talking about, and therefore it's so easily to misinterpret what they're actually saying. Let me close with this. I read this story the other day about a moth and a fly who meet on a windowsill. And the little fly is zooming around the room. It keeps jumping off the windowsill, makes a few circles, flies right toward the window, then boom, runs right into the window, falls back down to the windowsill, jumps up a second time, spins around, flies around the room, zooms across the room, comes in at a different angle, flies right at the window, and then boom. Hits the window, falls through the windowsill. A third time, the same thing. Jumps up, flies around, comes at a different angle. Boom, right into the window, falls through the windowsill. Finally, the moth says, what are you doing? And the fly says, what do you mean? And the moth says, well, it seems to me. But before he can finish, the fly springs up again and twirls around and flies around the room right back into the window boom falls to the windowsill and the fly says look don't you realize all we have is today time's a wasting and jumps back up flies around the room a few more times boom right back into the window the moth is bewildered he said i don't see any cracks or holes in the window and the fly says whatever and keeps flying around and boom, right back into the window again. Finally, the moth, in its exasperation, yells at the fly, It doesn't seem that all those eyes are helping you see the glass. And the fly comes back around and lands on the windowsill and says, What is glass? Amen.